Hear the word of our Lord from Isaiah chapter 1, beginning in the twelfth verse. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations, I cannot endure iniquity in solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good. Seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's try to do some word swaps in this passage and see if we maintain the spirit of the text. Let's hear it. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my chancel? Bring no more vain processions. Your chanting is an abomination to me. Liturgical calendars and divine services and liturgical propriety, I cannot endure iniquity and your solemn assemblies. Your vespers and your vestments, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you, even though you make many litanies. I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. You know, I get the feeling that both readings of the passage, the way it was written, and with a little word swap here and there, it feels like it's maintaining the same sense. The priesthood that Isaiah wrote to had suffered from the same formalism problem that many, 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 many churches have suffered under in the past few hundred years. The priesthood that Isaiah is addressing, that God is addressing through Isaiah, they were very, very liturgical. They were very devoted to having great services, to observing all of the proper rites and ceremonies according to the Levitical law. And in their mind, they were doing absolutely everything right. And God says it's all trash. Every last bit of it. Their theology was screwed up, they were not treating their neighbors correctly, and their behavior was so abominable that God says, well, you're covered in blood, pal, and it ain't your own. We need to fix that. <laughs> Fun way to start a little discussion on liturgy, isn't it? So I have in my hands here the Common Service Book with Hymnal. 
It is about 106 years old at this time, printed and copyrighted by the United Lutheran Church in America. ULCA, the U-L-C-A, and my goodness, is this a high church document. It has some beautiful, beautiful calligraphy all over it. It is chock full of resources collects that you can pray according to the church seasons, matins, vespers, a great litany service, and a high communion service where it seems almost every single word is sung. We're going to be taking a look at the divine service from this. But as our reading for today should establish, we need to be careful. Enjoying high church services and big divine services with a pipe organ and maybe a little bit of incense and pretty vestments and great stalls and pastors who know their way around a chancel, that's one thing. It's quite another when that becomes the main thing. When the substance of your faith is found in the liturgy and the liturgy alone. So before we talk about the structure of a liturgical service, we need to get this through our thick skulls, mine included, that liturgy does not make your church good. Having good liturgy does not make your church good. That's why we're looking at the Ulka hymnal, common service book with hymnal today, because just 13 years after this was published and promulgated throughout the entirety of the ULCA, there were prominent theologians in this particular Lutheran body that were denying a full quia subscription to the Book of Concord that previously they had embraced. They had problems with pastors and teachers denying the inerrancy of scripture, and eventually this just keeps falling down the wayside until they join up with the ALC, which joins up with ELCA. Yet the entire time, they were very, very high church oriented. They loved them some liturgy even after they turned betrayed the Lutheranism of history, and became what they ended up being, which was pre-Elka Lutheranism, just before preparing the world for that particular church body. And speaking of the ELCA, the ELCA, if you know your Seminex history, was mostly established by the AELC, which came out of the LCMS seminaries, their professors having denied the inerrancy of Holy Scripture and embraced higher criticism, they were all very high church guys. Oh my goodness were they. I learned liturgy from AELC printed sources all the way back from the 70s. Yes, indeed, they were high church as high church could get. Their theology was terrible. Their understanding of scripture was awful. Their supposed adherence to the Lutheran confessions, not worth trash in a bucket. But they were very, 
very high church, much in the same way their liberal comrades in the Episcopalian church were, much in the same way their liberal contemporaries in the Methodist church were, and so on and so forth. You might notice that as a denomination starts going leftward, as they start lurching towards that worldliness and the denial of biblical doctrine, they get really, really high church. Why, you might ask? Well, see, it's easier for the parishioners to accept all the garbage theology you're about to feed them when you look and act really, really holy, when you are a verifiable chancel prancer going about doing every ancient custom you can, you look really holy. But at the end of the day, you're a whitewashed tomb. Before we can talk about the structure of liturgy, this is a solemn and salutary warning. Do not make an idol out of the liturgy. I say this in all love. Liturgy doesn't save you. Smells and bells did not go to the cross to die for your sins, and nor will chanting really make somebody a better Christian the other six days of the week. We need to understand this before we do anything, anything with the liturgy itself, because everything in the original liturgies is supposed to fit a purpose. It is purpose-oriented, not self-oriented. This might offend some people who like pretty church services, but liturgy should never be done for its own sake. Liturgy is best done when it accomplishes what it is supposed to do in the hearers and participants. Let's go into the divine service in the Ulka hymnal to talk about that. It starts off with the minister saying, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. And everybody goes, Amen. You know, you, you got to chant it, right? <laughs> Maybe that puts people better in the mood for liturgy. Fine. But that is called the invocation. It is starting the service in the name of of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. As part of the service, the intention here is to tell your congregation, we are here, gathered as a Christian congregation. The Holy Spirit has brought us here in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. And this announces to the entirety of the world Jesus is with us, because Christ says, whenever two or more are gathered in my name, there I am among them. And then, immediately in this service, it moves on to the confession of sins. Beloved in the Lord, let us draw near with a true heart and confess our sins unto God our Father, beseeching him in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to grant us forgiveness. And, of course, there's the versicle there. Our help is in the name of the Lord, who made heaven and earth. I said, I will confess my transgression unto the Lord, and thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin. Why do confession? We do confession at the beginning of the service because we understand that a penitent heart 
will hear God's word and rightly take God's sacrament of communion when he understands that his sins are forgiven. So we need to drill that into our congregations that yes, you are about to be forgiven of all of your sins. So we pray the same kind of prayer here with the versicle. I said, I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord. We're saying that along with King David, knowing that we confess the same way he did. And then everybody together or hearing the priest speak on their behalf, Almighty God, our Maker and Redeemer, we poor sinners confess unto thee that we are by nature sinful and unclean, and that we have sinned against thee by thought, word, and deed. Wherefore, we flee for refuge to thine infinite mercy, seeking and imploring thy grace for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then everybody says together, O most merciful God, who hast given thine only begotten Son to die for us, have mercy upon us, and for his sake grant us remission of all our sins. And by thy Holy Spirit increase in us true knowledge of thee and of thy will, and true obedience to thy word, to the end that by thy grace we may come to everlasting life, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Now there's a second reason you want to do this at the very beginning of your service. Christ says he will be with those who gather in his name. Yes, there am I among them. Okay, that is important. Yes, so that people actually do take the rest of the church service seriously, having understood that their sins are forgiven and they are about to experience yet more grace heard and pronounced for them. But at the same time, God does not tolerate the presence of sin. And if he is going to be present, you want a people whose sins are forgiven that the presence of sin may not be counted against the congregation. It is an act of sanctification when everybody on the same page understands their sins are forgiven and God's presence is announced. So we hear the words of absolution. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, hath had mercy upon us, and hath given his only Son to die for us, and for his sake forgiveth us all our sins. To them that believe on his name he giveth power to become the sons of God, and bestoweth upon them his Holy Spirit. He that believeth, and is baptized, shall be saved. Grant this, O Lord, unto us all. And everybody sings, Amen. So, We've heard absolution. We've confessed our sins. We have heard absolution. And then we have an introit, which honestly, historically, was just a psalm that was sung for everybody. Now, in this hymnal, because they're good high church boys that love the church calendar, they have the introits, the collects, and the graduals all over about a hundred some odd pages, 75 pages of introits, graduals, collects, etc., and so forth. It's basically in place of a psalm. If you can't chant an entire psalm before you move on to the Gloria, thanking God for the forgiveness of sins and having everybody's hearts rightly prepared for the sacrament, then the introits are typically shorter and it works better for everybody. Again, if you ask me, this is mostly about preparing hearts. The pastor is supposed to be there serving 
God and serving the people. He serves God through serving the people, and that means conducting the liturgy in a way that is spiritually beneficial. For a lot of introits and chanted psalms, the idea is to say all of us together are participating in the spiritual life of God's holy church going all the way back to when the psalms were penned. It is the same participation in church that Christian churches have had now for 2,000 years. It gets people in the spiritual space, so to speak, and in the mindset of worship. And properly, the congregation should legitimately be praying the introit as it is being read or sung to them. Remember, the point is devotion. If they are not going to be mentally there, spiritually there, in the service with an introit, and if they are not going to be praying the psalm as it is read to them or sung to them, there's no point in it being in the service. If your people are not going to respond to it, and even with teaching it, if they're not going to care, it doesn't really belong there. Just saying. And somebody can repost that, oh no, see, this is about honoring God. We're going to do it whether or not people feel like it. My response to that is please reread Isaiah chapter 1 over and over again until you understand that God hates formalism. If you're just doing something to do it and you think you curry favor with our Lord, then you need to reread the passage again and again and again until you're willing to believe what it says. Now, if your congregation is full of mature Christians and you want their children growing up with things like the introit and the collect and everything, great, awesome, perfect. In fact, that should be included if this congregation is truly going to understand this part of the liturgy. It can be incredibly beneficial for them. But if something's not clicking with them, try to explain it to them. And if they still don't get it, skip it for the time being. Anyway, after that, there is the Gloria as the ending for the intro. Glory be unto the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. The particular form of it doesn't necessarily matter so much as people are giving glory to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, thanking him praising him for everything that they've just seen with forgiveness of their sins, with their absolution, and being grateful for the fact that God has gathered them, as well as a grateful anticipation for what is about to happen. Here, in this hymnal at least, it starts with communion. Some hymnal services are going to have communion before the readings, some will be after the readings, for the ULCA, it is before. The logic being, as far as I've been able to understand, that those who are refreshed by the gift, the salutary gift of Holy Communion, they are going to be that much better at hearing and treasuring the Word of God. It's going to be harder for them to break the third commandment and have their minds wandering one way or the other while listening to the sermon. Now, with that said, 
each hymnal is going to have maybe a slight variation from the others on how the communion service inside of the divine service looks. Some churches will start the entirety of the divine service with the invocation and then moving on directly to the Kyrie. Here, the ULCA puts the Kyrie as part of communion. Lord, have mercy upon us. Lord, have mercy upon us. And then Christ, have mercy upon us. Lord, have mercy upon us. They've just done the Gloria, giving thanks and glory to each person of the Trinity. And now it is time to ask the Trinity for mercy. And we understand that, yes, God does provide us mercy with the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ in the communion service. Yes, absolutely. We ask for it. He gives it to us. Awesome. But there's some history of the Kyrie that is related to whatever would happen whenever a royal figure entered into the town, the people would all cry out, Kyrie. They would say, Lord, have mercy on us. The Kyrie understood that way is a way to welcome Christ as he is about to show up with his body and blood for our blessing. So it makes sense here in this hymnal then for the Kyrie to be followed up with the Gloria in Excelsis, where the minister says, Glory be to God on high. And it's all sung in response to the congregation. I'll just say it instead of singing it. Glory be to God on high and on earth. Peace, goodwill toward men. We praise thee. We bless thee. We worship thee. We glorify thee. We give thanks for thee for thy great glory. O Lord God, heavenly King, God the Father Almighty. O Lord, the only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, O Lord God, Lamb of God, Son of the Father, that takest away the sin of the world, have mercy upon us. Thou that takest away the sin of the world, receive our prayer. Thou that sittest at the right hand of God the Father, have mercy upon us, for thou only art holy, thou only art the Lord. Thou only, O Christ, with the Holy Ghost, art most high in the glory of God the Father. Amen. As Christ himself is bringing his presence to us, we greet him, we praise him, we glorify the name of God, knowing that we are also asking for mercy and deliverance because the church is always small and persecuted here on earth. So we join the angels who sang glory to God on high upon the incarnation of our Lord Christ and upon his birth when the shepherds were out there. We join with the other saints who prayed during communion for God's deliverance. We pray along with the exiles. You are participating in the history of church when you were singing the Gloria in Excelsis. Good. It's a wonderful thing. I hope that everybody singing it in your church means it. And they understand that this is a prayer they are supposed to pray while they sing. But then we have the communion, which may or may not include the general prayer. Here, for the Olka, they do include a lengthy general prayer for everybody. 
uh, it seems to me they were trying to emphasize the blessings that our Lord Christ brings with him when he comes to refresh us with his body and blood. But whether or not there's a general prayer tacked on before, there has to be the Lord's Prayer in which we pray, give us this day our daily bread. And as Christ has identified himself as the bread of life, we'd better be praying this prayer before we take communion. Some churches are going to have the Lord's Prayer before the words of institution. Other churches will have the Lord's Prayer after the words of institution. It just depends on which church you go to. I've been to churches that have either one or been to both kinds. It doesn't really matter, but there is logic to each one. Why would I pray the Lord's Prayer after the words of institution? Should I not be requesting this before Christ comes and is present with us? But then again, other people want to be praying more in that special sacramental presence of Christ, so they pray the Lord's Prayer after the words of institution. Again, doesn't really matter so long as both are included before the distribution. Now, in this hymnal, they include the preface to the Holy Communion. Remember, communion is its own service inside of the wider divine service. This is why at verylutheran.biz we have a communion addendum tacked on to the free divine service so that whether it's a communion service or a non-communion service, you have this insert of a service all of its own. So with the preface, typically, and this is a very typical thing here that the Olka hymnal has, the minister says, the Lord be with you. The congregation sings or says, and with thy spirit. And then lift up your hearts. We lift them up unto the Lord. Let us give thanks unto the Lord our God. And they respond with, it is meet and right so to do. During this time, the preface is an important but not a 100% necessary part of Holy Communion. But the idea is to make people understand the gift they're about to receive, to lift up their hearts to Christ. You see, I pointed this out over and over and over again. You gotta mean it. Liturgy is worthless ritual, the kind that God hates if you're just going through the motions. So the preface is important, at least in high church settings, because it reminds people your hearts should be lifted up. We must give thanks to the Lord. It is meet and right so to do. To assist with that, the hymnists or hymnal writers, the liturgists, I think is the proper term, for the Olka hymnal included proper prefaces, seasonal prayers to include here. The idea being, it's a different part of the church year. This is going to help people potentially you know, stay attentive. So a good example of this, I won't read all of them, but for Lent, who on the tree of the cross didst give salvation unto mankind that whence death arose, thence life also might rise again, and that he who by a tree once overcame might likewise by a tree be overcome through Christ our Lord, through whom with angels and all archangels and with all the company of heaven we laud and magnify thy glorious name, evermore praising thee and saying, 
All right, see what I did there? Taking the prefatory prayer, if it is a seasonal one, the intention is for it to be written in such a fashion that you can immediately flow into the Sanctus. So everybody sings together, Holy, 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 Lord God of Sabaoth, heaven and earth are full of thy glory. Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Now this, again, emphasizes unity. There is a reason the minister says, with angels and archangels and with all the company of heaven, we laud and magnify thy glorious name. Because when you take communion, you are taking communion along with everybody on the planet on that Sunday who is also taking communion. Christ feeding the entirety of his church, as much as us as possible anyway, so that we can all glorify God together. It is a meeting between heaven and earth. Hence, we're singing this along with angels and singing the same song that they sing, the Sanctus. Now, here, the hymnal then moves on to the Lord's Prayer again. They like to do the prayers and then communion, and then they pray the Lord's Prayer again. Also, before the words of institution, I can imagine this being optional for most churches. If you've already prayed the Lord's Prayer once, right after the general prayer, there's no point in doing it again, but other people want it uh, isolated to right before the words of institution, so they pray it twice. However you do it, as long as it's there in the communion service. And then we have the words of institution. Our Lord Jesus Christ, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat, this is my body which is given for you, this do in remembrance of me. After the same manner also he took the cup when he had supped, and when he had given thanks he gave it to them, saying, Drink ye all of it, this cup is the New Testament in my blood, which is shed for you and for many for the remission of sins. This do as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. Setting aside the fact that there's some King Jamesy language that they prefer to employ here, there's also a note in the hymnal here. When we are consecrating the bread, it says, Here he, the pastor, shall take the paten with the bread in his hand. And then when he's consecrating the wine, here he shall take the cup in his hand. Because he's lifting them. There's all sorts of extremely detailed rule sets for what you're supposed to do during communion as the elements are being consecrated. Uh, do you make the sign of the cross over the bread as you say the words of institution? Do you do the same for the wine? Do you just hold it up as the ULCA did? There's all sorts of varying traditions on how it is, but the idea is a presentation to the people. This is the body of our Lord Christ now. This is the blood of our Lord Christ now. In, with, and under the bread and the wine. So lifting them up, presenting the elements to the congregation, the pastor says, the peace of the Lord be with you always." And their response, Amen. Now here, after this, is the Agnus Dei. O Christ, thou Lamb of God, that takest away the sin of the world, have mercy upon us. O Christ, thou Lamb of God, that takest away the sin of the world, have mercy upon us. 
O Christ, thou Lamb of God, that takest away the sin of the world, grant us thy peace. Amen. And then it is administered. So why the Agnus Dei before the distribution of the elements? On the one hand, we understand that Christ has just arrived. The elements have been consecrated. He is there. And he is there for mercy, so we'd better ask him for mercy in accordance with his word. But also, bear in mind that as you sing the Agnus Dei after the consecration of the elements, you are singing to Jesus as he is in the room. Some people are going to understand that immediately. Other ones want to be singing this to assist them in discerning the body and blood of our Lord Christ at the paten and in the chalice. It helps them to mean it when they go up to the rail for communion. Are you noticing a theme here? Everything in the liturgy, if it is properly observed, does two things. It unites all believers everywhere in heaven and on earth. It is a unitive factor. It is a participation in church history and in the body of Christ. And everything in the liturgy should be for a strengthening and an inspiration of faith, of real trust. This is why I will never criticize guys like Charles Finney for their revivalism. You might say, oh, Finney was just manipulating emotions. So, so does the liturgy. In a beneficial way, the word manipulate doesn't have to have a negative connotation here. You are trying to bring people into the proper headspace, into the proper place of faith, and bringing them to real trust in what's going on. Revivalism just does that in a really pop culture-y, Baptist-y way. <laughs> but the liturgy has been doing this for thousands of years now. Now keep in mind, yes, all of these are truly prayers. So Coram Deo, you really are praying these prayers, and it is important to lift your heart up to God and to really pray this, to ask him for the mercy that we know that we need. But the selection of the prayers, the reason that they're put there, is for the edification of the body, Coram Mundo, as well. Church is both a vertical and a horizontal service. It is worshiping God, thanking him, seeking his mercy, and glorifying his name for everything good that's going on that day but it is also for the benefit of each individual believer to strengthen them, solidify them, and edify them in the faith. And that is why, though it is not a prayer, during the administration of the Holy Sacrament, the distribution, people coming up to the rail, presenting themselves before the altar, what does the minister say? Well, in this hymnal, he says, Take and eat, this is the body of Christ given for thee. And he says, with the blood of Christ, take and drink, this is the blood of the New Testament, shed for thy sins. The minister is going up to each communicant member of the church that is taking communion and saying, he's really here. 
and he's really here for you. And the dismissal right after says, The body of our Lord Jesus Christ and his precious blood strengthen and preserve you in true faith unto everlasting life. And then they're dismissed back to their pew. Now, kids, you give a blessing. You know, you say, uh, Lord bless you in your baptism. You are a saint of God most high. But for all the people out there that are confirmed Lutherans, they take communion and you say, he's really here. He's really here for you. And then with the dismissal, he says, here is why he was here for you. For the forgiveness of your sins and the strength of faith unto everlasting life. You are saved as a person receiving the sacrament in faith. And that's why we sing the Nunc Dimittis after. Lord, now lettest thou thy servant depart in peace according to thy word. For mine eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared before the face of all people, a light to lighten the Gentiles, and the glory of thy people Israel. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Now, the Nunc Dimittis is in the Gospel of St. Luke. An old man, Simeon, sings it. When he meets our Lord Christ, the infant Jesus, he says, I can die happy now. I am no longer afraid of death. I'm delivered. I've seen my Savior. I can die happy. And everybody in that congregation, when they take Holy Communion and they sing the Nunc Dimittis, they are singing with the understanding that, yes, even if I walk outside of that parking lot and a meteor hits the church and I blow up, I know I'm going to heaven. And I praise my Lord Jesus for that. Now, immediately after, though, we do still have to give thanks. So there is the thanksgiving. Oh, give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good and his mercy endureth forever. That is the response. And, of course, the prayer that we've all probably heard in our Lutheran churches. We give thanks to thee, Almighty God, that thou hast refreshed us with this thy salutary gift. And we beseech thee of thy mercy to strengthen us through the same in faith toward thee and in fervent love toward one another. Through Jesus Christ, thy dear Son, our Lord, who liveth and reigneth with thee and with the Holy Ghost, ever one God, world without end. Amen. And then there's the salutation, the benedicamus, where we basically end the service there. At least the ULCA did. Of course, there's the reading of God's word. There's the preaching of God's word. Old Testament, New Testament, probably a psalm chanted in there somewhere. And then a gospel reading where everybody stands. Then there's a homily. But in the ULCA here, they separated that in the divine service and the communion service because they want to emphasize that everything centers around holy communion. The homily is ancillary to it. Do I agree with that? No. Ministers are charged with word and sacrament, not just sacrament. So the sermon is just as essential in my eyes as communion is. And that's why I prefer some of the more simple liturgies out there that give equal attention to both. But it is true that for over a thousand years, 
well over a thousand years, everything centered around communion and all of the prayers associated with that, all of the songs, all of the chanting, everything was centered around our Lord Christ and strengthening the congregation's faith in him. That's the point of it. And just about every high church liturgy out there worth its salt is going to share this in common with the ULCA's common service book with hymnal. The advantage? Well, the service itself can strengthen faith. The service itself serves as a great way to glorify God along with every other saint in God's church taking communion that time. Disadvantage. The point of this is to unite all believers and also to strengthen and edify their faith. It can be abused and manipulated by non-believing pastors or corrupt, subverted pastors to make themselves look so, so, so holy before their congregation that their status as a Christian is never questioned. Their teaching is never questioned. There is a reason that the Roman Catholic masses have always been such high, devout masses in the past, because whether or not they want to admit it, it bolsters sacerdotalist attitudes, and that is the danger of high liturgy. We cannot forget that. We have a massive sacerdotalist problem right now in Lutheran churches. I dare you to prove me wrong on that. We have pastors that refuse to be questioned, leaders of synods that treat themselves as though they are the papacy itself. We're going off that cliff, and it's always in high liturgical churches that this is happening. So personally, I prefer simpler liturgy, and we'll get into that in another recording as to why uh, we'll get into all of that stuff. But for now, that is that. If you prefer higher liturgy, there's nothing wrong with that. But please, 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 please do not make that the basis of your faith entirely. And don't just do liturgy for its own sake. Do liturgy for the benefits that God provides to you through it. Amen and amen.